The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. How are you, folks? We're joined by musician and composer Jonathan Wolf. It's safe to say that every single day, many times a day, his music is playing on television somewhere. He created the music for 75 primetime network television series. He wrote 44 TV themes. He's best known for the music he created as the theme song for the television show Seinfeld. But there's others. He created music for Who's the Boss, Will and Grace, Married with Children. These days, he's a lecturer, concert performer, and it's a great pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much, Paul. That was quite an introduction. It's our pleasure to have you. So, your story begins in Kentucky. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your your early years. Well, I started really, really young. I was, as you mentioned, I was born and raised in Kentucky in Louisville, where as a child, I received formal training through classes and private lessons, first at the University of Louisville, then later at Bellarmine University. Those early studies included music theory, harmony, orchestration, sight reading, sight singing, piano performance, conducting, ear training, accompaniment, jazz arrangings, composition, songwriting. I was pretty well trained. Now, University of Louisville Music School was, at that time, a conservatory. My lessons were all based on old concert music. You know the list. Beethoven, Mendelssohn, Bach, Chopin, Mozart, Clementi, Haydn, Brahms, Schumann, Tchaikovsky. You got, you know. And after that at Bellarmine, I got introduced to more recent concert work like Prokofiev, Greg, Liszt, Sautee, Rachmaninoff, Debussy, Stravinsky, and Copland. Those guys. It was all good until I really wanted to learn more about jazz. And then the story gets interesting, Paul, because my teacher and mentor was a young local music teacher who taught out of his basement. That's not unusual, except that the name on the mailbox at this local teacher, the name said Jamie Abersold. Now, Jamie is a renowned jazz educator. People all over the world learn jazz from his books and records. And I was fortunate to have been one of his lab rats. Hmm. You know, I learned a lot of jazz from him. I learned a lot of music. But more importantly, I was able to observe Jamie as a global business owner. His catalog of instructional materials, especially his play-along records and books, is the world's highest standard for jazz education. So at a very young age, Jamie became my model for combining music and business, that place where art and commerce connect. And I took that mentality to Hollywood when I was 17. How many musicians do you think are doing that? And that is combining business and music. Unfortunately, 
most young musicians are not. And that's why, as you mentioned, I'm a lecturer. I don't go and give master classes in composition and harmony and theory. I, okay, sometimes I do that. But mostly <laughs> I'm there to talk about the business of being a creative professional, how to monetize those skills in your craft so that you don't, unless you want to, end up selling car parts. Hmm. When you made this decision to go out to California at 17, what did your parents say to you? <laughs> you know how Harry Potter had to go to Hogwarts and it didn't matter what the aunt and uncle thought. It just, he was compelled to go there because that's where his people were. My people were in Hollywood and I just had to go there every signal from the universe, every song on the radio spoke to me and said, go to California and seek your destiny. So my folks were okay with it. I had been working professionally for many years before that moment. I started when I was 12. And when you went out there, was it absolute courage? Was there any little voice saying, Oh, boy, this is big. When you're 17, <laughs> first of all, you never think you're going to die. And it never occurred to me the practicalities, or in this case, the impracticality of going out there. I had no friends, no family in Hollywood, and I'm not pretty. So, you know, it wasn't like the world was going to just hand me a career. But at 17... You don't think like that. You think, I can do this. And that's what I did. I went out there with really good training, with pretty good confidence, and started working. When you got out there, what did it feel like? Well, there was so much music and so many excellent musicians. So when you first get there, you go to the Union Hall, and I changed my membership from the Louisville local to the LA local. And I got that directory. It was on, you know, a paper directory because this was 1976. And I started thumbing through it and seeing all these legends, these awesome, amazing musicians who I've idolized my whole life and their phone numbers are in the book. I thought that was just the coolest thing ever. And I, you know, one of them, I picked up the phone and called him and introduced myself and said, will you be my teacher? Which was pretty crazy. And he just said, no, no, I don't really do that. But I talked my way into his house somehow. And he ended up being my teacher. Later, I learned that I was his only student, a guy named Claire Fisher. Claire Fisher. Yeah. And tell us a little bit about him. I had studied his orchestrations, his arranging for years. In particular, I was just mesmerized by his vocal arrangements, a group called the High Lows. And you know, a later iteration of that was Manhattan Transfer. He did things that I had not heard before. His music was just magical to me. And I thought, this is a guy I need to learn from. And I did. 
I had wonderful experiences there. It didn't take me long, Paul, to start working in L.A. Started doing sessions as a studio player. I could sight read anything. I had pretty good versatility in my styles, genres. I was fearless because I was 17 and didn't know any better. And people started hiring me to play on scores and TV shows and records and commercials. Were there any early projects or sessions that you can tell us about that you had to pinch yourself? Every day. (laughs) See, now, (laughs) for the first 10 years that I was out there, my career was a seemingly scattered patchwork of overlapping assignments, mostly for the Hollywood studios. These assignments served as essential on-the-job training for my eventual career as a TV composer until my full-time composing career began to prepare for that privilege. I worked as a for-hire multi-purpose utility tool for musical chores. My job descriptions included, and a lot of these were pinchable things, studio musician, accompanist, arranger. I was a recording engineer, an orchestrator, a synth programmer. People hired me to produce music. And I was, a, you know, when things were slow, I was a music copyist. Sometimes they'd hire me to be a conductor or a skits pianist, music editor, electronic sound designer, a party pianist. I did onset production music consulting, and which means that you teach actors how to You coach them for musician and singer roles. If it smelled like music, Paul, I took the job. And, you know, some of them were steady gigs. For several years, I had music assignments every week for the TV series Fantasy Island and The Love Boat. These TV shows had weekly musical guest stars. Now, not necessarily the A-lists, but it was work. And my job on these shows was to create the musical arrangements and record the tracks for the musical guest stars. So I got to work with hundreds of recording stars. That's not hyperbole. And so that was kind of a neat thing. Now, now some of them were terrible. I committed some real war crimes, Paul. <laughs> some, of those, some of those weeks I would shake my head and go, what am I doing? But, you know, there were also some really great weeks where I got to record with Jennifer Holliday or Andy Griffith or Bobby Short or Mickey Gilly. And it was fun. Paul Williams, Melba Moore, The Temptations, Engelbert, Theodore Bacall. And there were regulars that would come. Carol Channing and Ethel Merman were regulars. Florence Henderson was a regular. So some weeks were better than others. But I kept working. I slept very little during those 10 years. And I, I did similar freelance assignments for episodes on shows like Dallas and Knott's Landing, and Dynasty, Falcon Crest, The Colbys, Twilight Zone. It was it was just seemed like an unreal string of opportunities that came at me daily. And what happened that started to form this identity for you that Jonathan Wolf is a guy that you can go to for television music? It's about money. That the one thing that I was kind of 
that fueled my fear of failure was, boy, do I have enough money this month for my rent? And, you know, how long is this going to last? Sure, right now I'm flavor of the month, but that phone's going to stop ringing. So I would do, I would try to maximize my income. So instead of doing a session where I'm just the piano player, I started prioritizing calls where I was also the arranger or the conductor or the orchestrator and the songwriter and slowly crept up that ladder until I was only doing dates that were my dates where I was leading and writing. And in that way, I was able to somehow gather a little bit of control. And in answer to your question, it, to do record dates meant whole days in the studio on the same session. Whereas if I'm doing TV dates, those are usually three hour dates. I could book four of them in one day. And that's why I gravitated towards TV. Also, I had certain skills, sight reading skills and music genre skills that were more useful doing screen music than perhaps playing on records. And what did you find it was like to work with the business end of the people involved in television? How did you handle them? It took me a while to become familiar with those corridors, to uh, really feel comfortable in the offices of the heads of music. And these were folks who hired me for all these assignments. But eventually I did. And mostly I thought about Jamie Abersold and how he was always on time and always gave good service and always checked to make sure that his clients were happy. And I would do the same thing. I'd follow up and make sure that the head of music for whatever studio I was working for that day was pleased and got good reports and let that person know that I'm available tomorrow. Um, in that way, people started to show confidence in me, faith in my abilities. Uh, they were loyal and helpful and allowed me to develop relationships that would eventually cement themselves into a career as a composer. What's the best way to get someone to have confidence in you? Yeah, don't mess up. <laughs> sure, I made plenty of mistakes, Paul, but hopefully they were mistakes that were you know, invisible to my employers. You can chart the course of my career by that long trail of mushroom clouds and blast craters you see behind me. But from each one of those disaster sites... I had a moment of startling clarity, the zenith of understanding of what I did wrong and how not to do it again. And hopefully, if my employer saw that, I let them know that I learned from it. And there were a couple occasions where I was able to make heartfelt apologies. And my employers seemed to respect that, that I was willing to take, be accountable when things didn't go right. Eventually, after those 10 years went by, I changed my business model. I came up with an actual business plan. And that is something, Paul, all musicians, let me start over again. That is something that all people need for their careers, no matter what your career is. You need a business plan. It's got to be practical. It's got to be sustainable. It's got to be flexible, 
because the landscape changes. Most importantly, it's got to be goal-oriented. Got to have clear goals. And after 10 years, I realized what my goal should be. And I put it in writing on a little index card. And that was my business plan. And the goal for me was to impregnate the airwaves with Jonathan Wolf music. And I changed everything I did to accommodate that goal. I sent letters, Paul, to each of those people that you're asking about. All those department heads, all those other composers who hired me as a conductor and as an orchestrator, I sent letters to all of them with an envelope and a stamp because there was no email. And it said, thank you for being supportive and having confidence and faith in my abilities and enabling me to have all this wonderful work. Now, stop that. I am no longer available for those assignments. I am a composer. And then I held my breath because, <laughs> you know, that may be another one of those mushroom clouds. I may have just, you know, burned all my bridges. I, I had also at the same time sold everything I owned and bought a building in Burbank, California, on Burbank Boulevard, right in the heart of Studio District. And I built for myself what no one was hiring me for, a place, a beautiful facility with great equipment where I could create great music using the best gear. And since there was no such job out there, I made it for myself. And in those letters I sent out, I said, here's my address, come see me. And what happened after that, Paul, was all these folks who had been hiring me to do their chores, like little toggle switches all around Hollywood, they switched and started hiring me to write their songs for their movies and create their dance music and create their scores and create their themes because I declared myself a composer. I just needed a business plan to instruct me. Hmm. Talk about a leap of faith. That was a bit of a leap of faith because who <laughs> knew? But it's important that we all have, well, you got to know what your goals are so you know which direction to go so that, you know, I would still get phone calls just because I said, don't call me for those. People still call me. But I would look at that business plan and maybe I was getting called to work on, you know, the orchestration team for an award show. And I look in and go, wait a minute, award show. They never rerun. There's no legs on these shows. It's, it airs once maybe and then it's done. It's often not even my music. No. I'm not doing that job because it does not impregnate the airwaves with my music. And I kind of use that as a template, a guide for which way to go next. So why did you want to impregnate the airwaves with your music? You're going to see a common theme here, Paul. <laughs> it's about money. Yeah. Yeah, because if, you, if you're orchestrating someone else's material, you don't earn royalties for that. Whoever created the material earns the royalties. I wanted to be a royalty earner. I wanted that to be my job. And in order to do that, my music had to broadcast. At the time, there were only three networks. So I hard targeted those three networks. And then I realized, wait a minute, primetime pays more. So I'm going to hard target primetime. And I could do hour-long shows because, as you know, I was raised – working, doing chores on 
those hour-long shows like Dallas and Knott's Landing and Fountaingrass. But if you write a theme for one of those shows, that's good, and it plays once in that hour. But if you're doing half-hour shows in that same hour, you could get two themes. That's twice as many themes broadcasting and twice as much royalty income. So I hard-targeted half-hour, primetime, episodic series. Hmm. And so how important was it for you to retain the rights of these compositions? Well, rights, that's a big word. When I started doing real assignments, TV shows like the ones you mentioned, that was considered work for hire. It's a double hyphenate. And it means that the ownership rights of the music I created belonged to the employer, as it should, because they were paying me for this work for hire. The right to collect the composer's portion of the royalties. That was important to me, Paul. Some folks will, and I, you know, this is a mistake, will, for a few extra bucks on the front end, will give up the rights to their royalties. I've seen it happen over and over again. And that's a mistake only because you don't know what you're giving up behind door number three. Had I done that with Seinfeld? You know, I was young and stupid. Sure, so they say, well, here, here's $100,000. I would have probably said yes, and I'd have been stupid. So the lesson from that is, yes, it is important to make sure you understand what your rights are, you understand how royalties work. I lecture a lot specifically about intellectual properties, copyright, publishing, licensing, royalties, contractual rights. These things are every bit as important to understand as composition and songwriting and production. Equally important to my career were all those things. What was the first television theme that you had a hand in that our listeners would perhaps remember. Hmm. You got to kiss a lot of frogs, Paul. <laughs> I had I had a lot of losers. Most of that, if you go, you know, you go to my website. It's my, by the way, my website is it's it's subtle. It's SeinfeldMusicGuy.com. <laughs> You look up that list and you go, well, yeah, there's like 75 shows on here, but I've never heard of most of these. Most of most TV shows don't survive. And of the ones that do make it to the air, you know, first they were a pilot and most pilots don't survive. So you do 10 pilots for every one that makes the air. And then you get on a show and most of those die instantly. So the first, you know, the themes that end up mattering the most that people really remember probably are the ones that ended up being the biggest ones Seinfeld and Will and Grace and they remember that one because it's back on the air and what about the work you did with Who's the Boss? 
Hoods and Boss was a wonderful, fun job, and it introduced me into Columbia Pictures Television, which became kind of a home for me. I did, I don't know, maybe 20 series for Columbia Pictures Television after I was hired for Who's the Boss, including Married with Children. My work on Who's the Boss did not include the theme. The theme was already written when I was hired. Uh, so my job was to do all the special material, the transitions, to write songs as they came up within the the show. And it was a fun job. And there was a lot of music on that show. And I most importantly established a long relationship with Tony Danza, who was very demanding of everyone on the show, which I respected. If you did your job well, you showed up on time, did your best all the time, Tony repaid that with in-kind respect. And Tony went on after that to produce I don't know how many TV shows and on every one of them he made sure that it said at the end music by Jonathan Wolf so I was grateful for that kind of loyalty I've been wondering about this the past couple of days as I've been thinking about our interview when I think about all of the television theme songs there have been some really great ones through the oh. years and I would like to know from you, what do you think have been the best theme songs for television? Theme songs are a very personal item for people. You People relate. It's like touchstones from your life, from your childhood. And that's no different for me. You know, I it was so much fun for me when I finally met John Sebastian to tell him, Welcome Back, Cotter was a great theme that inspired me, which it was, still is a great theme. Nielsen's Courtship of Eddie's Father was important to me. Obviously, Sanford and Son was a game changer. Everyone just went, whoa, what the heck was that? Barney Miller, great theme song. Those are the ones that are coming to mind right now. Now, obviously, as a small child, one of my very, very first influences was Henry Mancini. We all remember the first time we heard the Pink Panther theme. Oh, yeah. Oh, you know, how ingenious it was and how much fun it was later to be able to meet Henry Mancini and, you know, actually worked under him on a project and then later when I was playing dates, I I played with Plaz Johnson, who was that saxophone player on the Pink Panther. That theme, you know, that one, and of course, you know, almost anything that Henry Mancini ever did. Peter, Peter Gunn, if you remember that theme, man, it changed everything in its era, too. So there are... A theme song can be not only a historical landmark, it has Pavlovian powers to take you back to that place in your childhood or your youth or whatever part of life you're in where you identified with that TV show. And the theme song is like a portal through which you can travel back in time. I'm curious to know what you think about the theme song, the ending theme song for Frasier. Oh, tossed salad and scrambled eggs. Yeah. 
Never heard of it. Now, of course, <laughs> I've heard. I love that. I just love that it's scattered and wacky and funny. And it's, you know, it's just, it's a blues. It's a scat blues. And one of the folks who had a hand in it was my friend Bruce Miller, uh, who did the rest of the music for Frasier. I love that song. And I love that Kelsey sang it with such wild abandon. <laughs> You know, he was he fearlessly sang that song and you believe it. He did it sort of half in character and half out. And it was just, you know, you asked the right question there, Paul. (laughs) I do like that song. We're joined by musician and composer Jonathan Wolf. Now, I want to ask you about a person, a son of Atlanta, Georgia, who plays a part in your story, the comedian and actor George Wallace. Yeah. How did you meet him? St. George. Well, there. I'll start over. Hollywood is a union town. And anytime any combination of contracts is up for renewal, like, you know, the Teamsters or the writers, directors, actors, it makes for a perfect storm for a work slowdown or shutdown or strike. And this happens with some regularity in Hollywood. So when that happened, I, you know, my work would dry up. There's no studio work. So I would take my talents on the road and conduct for concerts, including Vegas acts. Now, two of my Vegas acts were Tom Jones and Diana Ross. They shared the same opening act a brilliant comic who you just referred to named George Wallace. I'm there anyway. So sure. I'll help George out. I wrote some funny little songs for his act and I would go with him when we were off to comedy clubs and play piano for him. So we, we became friends, buddies. Now it turns out years later that Jerry Seinfeld in real life, has a best friend named George. It's George Wallace. So when Jerry was complaining to his friend George, as he does on the show, about the music for his new show that he that no one can get it right, George Wallace said, hey, call my buddy Wolf. And that's how I got a phone call from Jerry Seinfeld. It was because of my relationship with George Wallace. Relationships are so important. <laughs> yeah. My my most important asset through my entire career were those rock-solid, unshakable relationships of people who trusted me, and I trusted them, real friendships. And, you know, like any small business, you know, any small business, whether you're a dentist or a shoe store or whatever, you need repeat business, customer loyalty. You need... Name recognition, brand recognition. They have to know who you are. And you need referrals. And that story about George Wallace and Jerry Seinfeld is a good example of how I, as a small business, benefited from that small business best practice of asking for referrals. So when you took on the Seinfeld Music Project, you kind of did you kind of look at it like creating a custom sound? How did that go? 
anytime you're making a pitch, and in this case, it was on the phone, you got to make sure you got their attention. Paul, you make pitches all the time. And so you're probably pretty good. I've seen your list. You're pretty good at the pitch. I got a phone, I got a phone call from Jerry Seinfeld, who described to me the opening credits of his new show. It was Jerry Seinfeld standing in front of a group of people. Jerry tells jokes. The people laugh. And he wanted a theme song to go with it. So I said to Jerry, that sounds like a recipe for an audio conflict. It sounds to me like what we really want to hear is your human voice telling jokes. So how about this, Jerry? We treat your human voice telling jokes as the melody for the Seinfeld theme. Every time you do a different monologue, it's a variation on the theme. My job will be to accompany you in a way that does not interfere with the audio of your speaking voice. This is more of a sound design issue than a musical issue. And how about this, Jerry? And this is where you got to get his attention and pitch. How about if to go along with the human organic sounds coming out of your mouth, I create human organic sounds with my mouth like this. <laughs> and I had his attention because that was from Mars in the late 80s. Remember, theme music in the late 80s, if you look it up, it was a lot of melodies with silly lyrics and sassy saxophones. Guilty. I did a lot of that music, <laughs> but it was not going to work here. So I, so Jerry was intrigued. He came over and I showed him how it works. Uh, he brought over some HBO special he had worked on. And I pointed out to him that if I use a bass to weave in, or in around him, to stop and start in between his jokes and leave room for the punchline and hit it hard afterwards like a rim shot and you know, in a comedy club, the bass in a general way will stay out of the frequency range of your voice. And the slap bass at the time had not yet enjoyed celebrity status as a solo instrument. It was buried in funk music. I brought it forward, illuminated it, made it really nasal and annoying. And that became the sonic brand for Seinfeld. It wasn't so much about the music. There's not much music to it. In fact, the baseline itself is so simple and sophomoric that it does not require four beats to the bar to hold water. It doesn't even require meter. It can stop and start to hold for his jokes and his punchlines and still be the Seinfeld theme. Did that answer your question about the birth of the <laughs> Seinfeld theme? Yeah, yeah. I gotta say, when you when you uh, when you made the the sounds that would come back from the break, that made my day. Yeah, <laughs> so glad to hear it. And they got wackier and wackier as time went on. Now, at first, the network, who are wonderful, smart people, they they weren't certain, they weren't sure that this was the right sound for Seinfeld. Because remember, it was music from Mars at that time, and Seinfeld was not a hit show. So there were folks at the network who wanted that music changed. And I said to Larry, hey, Larry, choose other battles. I'll change the music. No problem. You'll like whatever I do next, too. 
And Larry was not having it. <laughs> Larry did not like people telling him to change his show. So the music lived. And years later, those same network folks and I had become really tight because I did, I don't know, you can look at the list, probably 17 or 20 shows for maybe more, for NBC, for those folks. Hmm. So Larry David basically stood up to them and said, no, the music stays. Correct. That is, that is a fair way to describe it. Um, well, the way the meeting went, and I was at the meeting, I said those words to Larry, you know, I'll, Larry, I'll change the music. It's okay. And Larry threw me out of the meeting. He said, Don't you dare. You get out. Wolf, you're done here. Out. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I stayed long enough to hear Glenn Padnick from Castle Rock, who was technically all of our boss say to Larry, look, if you feel strongly about it, I will back you. I will go to the mat with you on this. And, you know, <laughs> that's what happened. Larry refused to budge, and Glenn Padnick supported him. What do you think of Larry David? <laughs> I don't think about Larry that much anymore. Um, <laughs> well, first of all, the obvious. This is something that's not a secret. He is the genius behind the show. You know, he's his writing skills are unsurpassed. Nobody else writes as well as Larry does. And I've worked with some really amazing screenwriters. Larry is just funny. He knows what's funny. He knows that he is funny. So that's the good part. Now, you've seen Curb, Paul. You know what? Oh, yeah. Like, that's not a character. <laughs> That's Larry. Larry does those things. He likes to stir the pot. He is most comfortable when you are not. <laughs> he will find ways to make you mad or angry just to get a rise out of you. And if that doesn't work, he'll get mad at you and, you know, make you react to it. And this is how he relates to folks. When it's your turn, Paul, it's simply your turn. He's a professional and you're not. And there's no way you're getting out of it. So, yes, it was my turn three or four times during those years. And I just sort of hoped it would go by and leave me <laughs> soon enough. Uh, but, yeah, that, it was not always easy working for or working with Larry. But there were also some times that were just magical to work with Larry. Uh, before the Pez Dispenser. Uh, it was an episode that featured a concert pianist. And, you know, as you already know, that was my earliest training was concert music. So I brought a big box of standard concert piano liturgy and just played through one after the other at the piano. And Larry sat on the piano bench with me and listened carefully to each one and envisioned how it worked with the scene. And then he picked uh, Beethoven Sonata, the C minor, because he saw that it had holes in it. It had phrases that could be separated with pauses. And those pauses could be pregnant or they could be tiny. And he wanted me to be able to manipulate those phrases to accommodate the dialogue and the hijinks 
that ensued during the concert scene. So that was a time when working with Larry was really cool. Now, as part of that scene in the Pez dispenser, the pianist gets distracted by an actual Pez dispenser. And, you know, that makes a mistake playing. So the first time through, I get to the place and I make a mistake. Larry goes, no, 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 what was that? No, no, big mistake, big mistake. Okay, okay. So I go back and I do a little bit bigger mistake. You know, like I hit it with my fist, boink. And it sounds like a big mistake to me. <laughs> and no, no, come on, bigger, huge. This is terrible. This is a real embarrassment, like a piano falling out of a building. Okay, I got it. So the third time through, I played the piece. And when it came to the mistake, I think I used my elbow. Just rock. And looked over at Larry. He's got two thumbs up in the air. <laughs> I thought it was over the top. I, at the time, I was sitting there thinking, he's never going to use that because it's that, nobody makes that big a mistake. But because he's Larry David, he's always right. And he was, in fact, correct. That when you mix it in with the audience and the proximity and the air and the sound of the concert hall and stuff, that mistake does not loom as large as it did to me. And he was correct. It, the scene works best the way he wanted it. And what about Jerry Seinfeld? When you first made contact with him, or he made contact with you, what was your first thoughts about him as a guy? Any friend of George Wallace is a friend of mine, is what I was thinking. You know, if George loves this guy, then I will probably learn to love him myself. And he was a nice, you know, nice enough guy. He kind of, you know, just like... Larry on Curb Your Enthusiasm, that's who Larry is. Jerry on Seinfeld, that's kind of who Jerry is. He's a nice guy. He's a likable guy. He has his foibles, but, you know, he's a decent guy. So we got along fine. You know, we didn't have that. We were never close. We didn't hang out. We were not buddies. But we got along fine. It shifted a little one Let's see, this was 1992, so we're three years into the show, and it's Christmas break, and we're walking to the parking lot or something, and he says to me, so what are you doing over Christmas? And I said, well, I don't know, I wasn't really talking about it, but since you asked, I'm getting married. He could not digest that. He just, the new girl, the one you just met, is she pregnant? Are you crazy? What, <laughs> you know, what is so wrong with your life that you feel the need to just upheave everything and get married right now? What can't? Why can't it wait? You know, and he made a point because I had only met this girl a couple weeks before. We're still married, by the way, and that was twenty-five years ago. But so you know, he wasn't completely insensitive there. And, but I said, you know, you don't have to marry her. <laughs> I'm going to marry her. I'll let you know how it goes. <laughs> and then a couple of years later, in 1995, we started popping out way too many kids. And he just looked at me as if I'd contracted some disfiguring disease. And the only thing he could think to say to me was, how many kids do we have now? <laughs> so <laughs> now, of course, Jerry's primary 
identity is probably as a dad and a husband. And so he'd probably understand more now. But in answer to your question, during those years, uh, we kind of orbited in different orbits. Was there anybody from the show Seinfeld that you got to know a little bit? Well, sure. On the crew, I got to know a lot because we worked on lots of shows together. If you're talking about the cast, uh, Jason, Jason Alexander and I became buddies. Uh, Our kids were about the same age. And I would during the show, I'd sit with Dana, his wife in the audience. We got together with our families occasionally. So, yeah. There was a love connection there. In fact, a few years, you know, this is just like two years ago, maybe. I live in Louisville, Kentucky again. I retired in 2005 and went into Hollywood witness protection. (laughs) I was relocated back to Louisville and nobody knows I'm here. So Jason is doing one of his pops concerts. They're like ATM jobs where you go and you, you know, sing a few songs, and you take the money. Uh, he was doing it with the Louisville Orchestra, which is actually a very good orchestra. So I showed up backstage afterwards and he's signing autographs and taking pictures with people. And he looks over at me and he goes, man, that guy looks familiar. And finally he put it together and he and I had a wonderful, fine reunion. And we talked mostly about, this notion of retirement. Well, here comes kind of a curveball. Sure, bring it on. I have to say, of all of the celebrities on Twitter, Jason Alexander is perhaps the most responsive. Anytime I've ever tweeted him, he just he just always writes back. And I've joked with him a few times about Jason Alexander, do you think that you will ever release an album of your singing? And so I'd like to ask you, Jonathan Wolf, do you think that he could do an album? Well, the way you phrased it, yes, he could do an album. <laughs> Should he? <laughs> okay. So that's a different question. Uh, I think he probably could have, should have done it with more success back in the day, you know, 1998 when Seinfeld ended and he was a household appliance. That may have been a time to play that card. Now, I don't know. I think Jason's a classy guy. I don't think he would do that. You know, for what purpose? He'd have to take a lot of ridiculing for folk, from folks like you for doing it. Not me. Uh, he's, <laughs> he's a fine singer. Yeah. Uh, he, You know, he was raised in the Sondheim School of Broadway musical. He, you know, he's the real deal, had real credentials before he hit the screen. So, yes, he can. He's still saying, yeah, he's a man of a certain age. Our voices change a little bit. So he's not the singer he used to be. Uh, He can dance. And again, you know, he and I are men of a certain age. We don't dance like we used to. (laughs) So to put himself out there as a singer with an album, I don't know. I, I, you know, I don't think so. Maybe a compilation, maybe a bunch of artists getting together to do some good. Yeah, yeah, sure. He would probably do that and he would sing fine. He would do a great job, especially if it was Broadway musical theater material. 
because that's really his strong suit. Now, when he sang on Seinfeld, he sang, we, I think he only sang once. And that was when he sang for the answering machine. He sang altered lyrics to the theme song for The Greatest American Hero, Believe It or Not. Yes. <laughs> George isn't at home. So I created those tracks and recorded Jason singing them. But Jason's a little bit too good of a singer. So I sabotaged it by detuning the track, which made him sound sharp. Evil, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it just wouldn't have been right to have George Costanza actually sing well. <laughs> just like it wouldn't have been right to have Elaine Bennis dance well. So how did this new chapter in your life with the lecturing begin? I retired in 2005 and moved to Kentucky for the purpose of being a full-time PTA room parent and sports coach volunteer and field trip chaperone. We decided that my family needed me more than Hollywood needed more of my music. And so I did those things. I was a full-time stay-at-home dad, as they say. Now, that was in 2005, and Paul, you're probably good at math. So those kids, you already know, are grown, and they don't need me 24-7 anymore. In fact, it's embarrassing for dad to keep hanging around, you know, <laughs> giving out glue sticks when they're 20. So, you know, they encouraged me. They said, dad, get a hobby. We're good. You've done it. We're good. We're good now. I have a lot of Hollywood stories and a big mouth. Public speaking, it is. <laughs> so I do, in addition to the lectures at universities, I do a lot of law school lectures where I talk about those topics that we've already been over and the business of being a creative professional. In addition to those, I sometimes do corporate engagements where I'm the entertainment. I tell stories from the piano, tell Seinfeld stories and Larry David stories and talk about the songs of my youth, including those theme songs you asked me about. I do those. I do nonprofit fundraisers as long as they take place in an actual professional performing arts center or at a university concert hall. I'm kind of spoiled by those nice concert grants. And that is how I got to where I am now. So when somebody goes up to you after maybe one of these lectures or before maybe, whenever, what do you find there the, the common theme of people's interactions with you is like? It depends. If, I, if I'm there on a corporate assignment or one of these fundraisers, uh, people genuinely want to talk about their relationship with Seinfeld and what it meant to them and how they watch it with their kids. That's folks of a certain age. When I'm at universities talking with students, they want to talk about their careers, their business plan, what comes next, the topics that I've just gone over in my lecture for them, you know, how they can develop their own personal business plan you know, so they can do what they need to do, maybe to compete with a young version of me. Hmm. What is the best compliment you've received as a musician? 
Well, Paul Leslie sent me an email saying, can I interview you? Come on. (laughs) No praise is higher than that. Now, the, the truth is, every time someone knew, I expected my old clients to call me. I was good at retaining accounts. Every time a new person called me, that was really a big compliment to me, that someone had referred them or they had seen my work on TV and said, yeah, I want that. That, to me, was the highest praise I could achieve, was when someone sought me out and said, I, you know, I really want you to do my show. I really want you to write a song for me, something like that. You know, they, and late in my career, as I was winding down, those kind of started happening more and more because I announced my retirement and said, I'm done. I'm going to retire in 2005. And then people who I had not worked with yet started calling me saying, wait, wait, wait a minute. I mean, I really want to work with you. I've just been waiting for the right time. Those were always nice calls. One of those calls came from Reba McIntyre. And she had her TV show, Reba. And, I, you know, what a, what a wonderful opportunity that is to be the music guy for Reba. I really liked working for her. Now, in that conversation, when she was hiring me, to be your music person, I told her, look, I hope what I'm about to disclose does not have a negative effect on the next 10 seconds of our conversation, but I'm retiring in two years. Hmm. I can serve you well until 2005, and then I'll take good care of you. I got people who work with me, excellent people, better than me, who will take over for me at that time. But for the next two years, we're going to work together, Reba? And This is a lesson in humility. Reba McIntyre said to me, two years. Oh, honey, I just hope I'm still working in two months. (laughs) And she meant it. She wasn't making a joke. She, you know, she truly has that kind of attitude, that work ethic that says, I got to come to work every day and do my best and be prepared and put on a good show because you know, who knows if I'm going to work again. So that was, that was a lesson too. I want everybody out there to check out the website. If there's any, uh, if you need any more information about our guest, Jonathan Wolf, it's SeinfeldMusicGuy.com. He's got a great Facebook page. He's also on Twitter at Seinfeld music. And so I kind of want to give you the stage, so to speak, as we, close here to give you the microphone very open-ended we just don't know who will be listening but say whatever you like to our audience to paul leslie's audience i recommend to you that you do what i did when i first became aware of paul leslie go back and listen to some of those amazing interviews that Paul Leslie has done. I'm serious. Before I was joking, but I'm serious. There are some really great interviews, and Paul does this thing like he just did with me. He leaves it open. He lets the folks wander. 
they sometimes they become tangential and that's okay. My recommendation to you listeners is you go back and listen to the archives and then go visit my Facebook page and give it a like. <laughs> that is so kind. <laughs> Thank it's you true. so much. I did I did that. Oh. So, who is this guy? How is he? And then I started listening to your work and I went, Yeah, I'll do that. I would love to be part of that. Wow. And it's very kind of you to call it. most of the people that you interview, I've noticed, are not, as they say, has beens. I'm I retired a long time ago. A lot of the folks you who you interview are still active and vital. Me not so much. So thank you for including me in you know that honorary group <laughs> well my pleasure one more question sure who is jonathan wolf ah! jonathan wolf is in transition right now so we're looking for an identity i'm open to suggestions i've you know i'm no longer the hollywood composer i am no you know it's i had a nice long turn at bat paul i hit that ball hard over and over again but it's somebody else's turn now. I hope young people are out there hitting that ball hard. So I'm no longer that. I'm no longer the full-time stay-at-home dad making lunches and drawing funny pictures on the lunch bags. That was fun. It was great. And I love doing that. But my kids are older now. They don't need me so much. I've been for the last couple of years doing a lot of college lectures and that's been wonderful. And I may still be that guy. I may not be done with that yet. So right now, I'm a college lecturer. I'm a husband. I'm still a dad. And I'm an emerging entertainer. Because I like to tell these stories. Hey, I'm fully retired. I don't have to flatter anybody. I can name names. So I do that from the piano. And if you go to my website or my YouTube channel, you'll see that I do that occasionally from my piano. I tell little stories about artists who are important to me, songs that mattered. And that's who I am now. I'm kind of reflective of who I've been in the past. And I'm hopeful of what comes next. Wonderful. Well, Mr. Wolf, thanks so much for spending time with us. Thank you, Paul. I hope you will edit this to make me more lucid, and I, I'll thank you in advance. All right. Well, it's been a pleasure. Until next time. Thanks, Paul. Goodbye. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. For information, visit thepaulleslie.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time. <laughs>